0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of his of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's ask, let us seek the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask and seek you, O Father, this morning that, Lord, you'd be pleased to teach us from these passages that are in one respect familiar to us, but in another respect, Father, there's so much here. And Father, we ask, O Lord, that you'd be pleased to open our hearts this morning, uh, that we would uh, uh, be able to perceive and understand and align our hearts, O Father, and our minds with your truth, O Lord, for your word is truth sanctify us in your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's two words I want to introduce this sermon with, two words that I'd like in the pegboards of our mind to put up two little pegs, if you will, and hang these two words on those pegs. The first word is uh, reversal. Um, And the second word, at least for now, we're going to morph this word into something else a little bit later. But for now, we're going to we're going to put up the word proximity. So we have reversal, reversal, meaning like think of two wrestlers, high school wrestling. Uh, You have one guy on the bottom. He's getting (laughs) tanked. Another guy on the top who's doing the job of tanking him. Uh, And suddenly there's a Reversal and now it's a, it's a complete 180. Um, the guy that was getting tanked is now on top, and it's his turn. That kind of reversal, um, a reversal of opposites, if you will, a change to the opposite, uh, if you will. And proximity, think of proximity. What do I mean by proximity? Proximity is this um, being close in time, uh, space, and relationship. So we have reversal, and we have proximity let's hold those two uh, words if you will and concepts in our minds now our text begins with a time frame notice verse 39 we have in those days uh, what days would those be well we've been looking we've spent a lot of time in verses 26 through really 35. And what have we discovered there that God has sent the archangel Gabriel to Mary to make this announcement, verse 31, that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son, and she'll call his name Jesus, and that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, someone might say, you know, we've been over these verses almost... Uh, So many times I almost can start to recite these verses from heart, and to that I say, great and wonderful, great and wonderful. It's the way it should be. This is some of the most majestic melodies that we have in Scripture right here, (laughs) namely uh, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, of course, Mary, what is Mary experiencing at this moment? Um, This is really heavy, isn't it, Um, to have this dropped off on uh, such a, um, say anyone, but especially uh, a girl probably 14 or 15 years of age. And she asks in verse 34, how would this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born would be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, we've been over these verses quite a bit. Uh, Quite a bit. But we've touched on verse 36 a little bit, but we haven't said a whole lot about verse 36. And there's something really amazing going on in verse 36. There's an amazing, uh, act of grace on God's part taking place in verse 36. Notice that Gabriel doesn't just leave. He could have left at verse 35, but he doesn't leave at verse 35. He says in verse 36, behold, the old Mary, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is, and she's now in her sixth month. Now, why is that an act of grace? Well, I'll give you two, no less than two reasons. I'll give you two reasons why that's such an act of grace. Is one, it's going to strengthen Mary's faith because it's like, okay, I'm not the only one here. It's it's always helpful, isn't it, when you're in a situation to, to be reminded you're not the only one? <laughs> isn't it? I'm not alone. <laughs> you know, basically, Gabriel's saying, listen, you're not alone. I mean, Just a couple of months ago, I appeared to Zechariah, and you know the story. You know, for your entire life, all you've heard is Zechariah and Elizabeth have been trying to get pregnant. They've passionately desired a, a son, a child. They've passionately desired this. And now guess what? A miracle has occurred, and Elizabeth is now in her sixth month. So think about how much that would strengthen Mary's faith right there to know, okay, I'm not alone in this. The miracle that's taking place in Mary's body is indeed a much greater miracle than the one that's taking place in Elizabeth's body. But let's not diminish what's taking place in Elizabeth's body uh, either. You follow me? So that's the first act of grace. But the second act of grace is, especially ladies, think about this. If this news would have been dropped on you, what would you want to do after Gabriel left? What is the first thing you'd want to do? You'd want to go talk to somebody, wouldn't you? Oh, do I need somebody to talk to? And Gabriel has given Mary just that someone to talk to. I think this is more, maybe a lot of times this is more something that women does need very much and desire than men. And it's not to say that men don't need people to talk to, but am I right, ladies? Oftentimes you really do need somebody to talk to, don't you? And he won't listen, right? And that's a sermon for another day. We're not going to go there, okay? Fellas, we're spared for at least another Sunday. That'll be next week. No, I don't even know what we're doing next week. I really don't even know. Um, But she's getting someone to talk to. And it should be no surprise that we find her in verse 39 getting to Elizabeth's house as fast as she can. You know, you look at verse 39, "In, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Where is she headed to? (laughs) She's headed to. You you wouldn't be able to stop her. She's got to get to Elizabeth. And in verse 40, something really amazing happens. She enters the house of Zechariah, and she greets Elizabeth. And look with me to verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps, we're told in verse 44 that he leaps for joy. Now, it's not uncommon at this, you know, Elizabeth is six months uh, in in the course of things, and it's not uncommon to feel uh, some movement at that time. Am I correct? I can't speak from experience on that, obviously. Uh, but am I correct on that? Um, it's not uncommon to feel uh, movements like that. Uh, So how can we know that this is really a leap for joy on behalf of Elizabeth's child? Because Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 41. She is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit in this moment, how are we to understand that? Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit so that the words that are coming forth from her mouth are God's words, aren't they? These are inspired words. These are words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. These words that she speaks. So she is rightfully interpreting what is happening here. She's rightfully interpreting it. And there is something going on. There is a. The Holy Spirit is using a literary device here that we would do well to pay attention to. And it's easy to move over. It's easy to pass right over this, especially if we're not that familiar with the Old Testament. And what literary device am I talking about? Look at verse forty-two with me. Notice that we have another parallel. Like. had in verse 35 and we spent some time talking about. In verse 42, we have uh, one line, blessed are you among women. And in the next line, blessed is the fruit of your womb. You see the parallel structure there? Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, with that in mind, keep your place in Luke. And I want to show you Uh, One example of this literary uh, uh, structure, if you turn to Genesis with me, to Genesis 14, some of us may remember when we were there. Genesis 14, that's been a few years ago. But in Genesis 14, we have Abraham. He's just been victorious over those kings, the kings that come into Sodom and Gomorrah and, and sack those cities. And uh, Abram has, uh, Abraham is now called Abram at this point, and he has uh, been victorious over these kings. If you look at verse 17, Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedar Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh. And Melchizedek, this uh, mysterious Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God. So they're coming out to meet Abram, who's been victorious over these kings. And Melchizedek says to Abram, he blesses him, and he says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And verse 20, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, do you see the parallel structure there? read it again. It's, it's, It's being split between verses 19 and 20. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Let's think of that as one line for simplicity's sake. And then the second line, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is a brilliant literary device that what is taking place here is you have two lines one is in subordination to the other one. In other words, one line is lesser than the other line. The first line is lesser than the second line. See how it is lesser? Okay, there's a blessing. Uh, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. That's the lesser line. And it's, in sub- it's subordinate to the next line. And blessed be God Most High. The big difference. What's the difference? The difference between Abraham and God Most High the big difference between it isn't it blessed be the God most high now notice the greater blessing or the greater line the second line is providing the reason for the blessing in the first line what's happening in, in the second line in verse 20 blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand now what's going on here Melchizedek is coming out to greet Abraham Abraham has been victorious, and he's paying him honor for the victory, but he's doing it in the proper way. He is not falling into idolatry and falling down and worshiping Abraham, but he's still giving him the honor that is due to him. But he goes on after giving the honor due to Abram, to show where the true honor belongs. Blessed is Abraham who has defeated these kings, who has been victorious for sure, but blessed be God who has given Abraham the victory. Do you see what's going on there? So it's not like he's like, well, I don't want to give, I don't want, you know, I don't want to give too much honor to Abram here. Um, I want to be sure that all the honor goes to God. And then he doesn't give any honor to Abram. And Or he doesn't make the mistake of giving too much honor to Abraham as if it's all by Abraham's might and he does all this, which could lead others into worshiping Abraham, right? It's part in order. I mean, how does this fall out into uh, into application? It falls out really easy. Have you ever been to an event where someone is probably well-intended, it's probably well-intended, but he begins to introduce the next speaker and you get this sense where he's just going a little overboard with the accolades. Has anybody ever been in a... <laughs> and oftentimes it makes the speaker very, very uncomfortable, by the way, um, where those accolades uh, and accomplishments, accomplishments and stuff, if you will, um, they go overboard. And this can happen to such a degree where people say, no, we're not going to pay any respect or any honor. That's not biblical. This device right here teaches us very well and instructs us how to go on about this, you know? So we could say, yeah, you know, by God's grace, such and such, he studied here, he graduated from here, he graduated from there, he has led this, he has been a part of this ministry. Uh, Praise be to God. Uh, Give a hand to our next speaker. That's perfectly appropriate because the first line is in subordination to the second line, and the second line is given reason for the first line. Do you follow the principle there? It's wonderful. It's easy to miss all this, um, but it's, it's quite wonderful once you start to see it. Now, with that literary device in mind, let's go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 42, and let's see what Elizabeth is up to. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she speaks, and she says, Blessed are you among women, first line, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You see the same structure? Now, what's going on here? We have one line. There's a blessing given to Mary. And then the second line is a greater line. And the blessing of the second line is providing the reason for the blessing of the first line. Why am I taking time to, to point this out? Because this will keep us from worshiping Mary. This will keep us from falling into idolatry. That's the ditch on one side of the road. The much, that, that ditch is much more dangerous than the ditch would be on the other side, the ditch on the other side of the road is where Protestants often fall where we don't give any honor to Mary. You see, we don't need to be afraid to honor Mary if we stick with this principle. Um, she, I mean, she's the, she's the one who's been chosen by God. To, she is the instrument that God has chosen to bring his son into this world. That warrants praise, but it needs to be careful. we need to be careful, and this is teaching us exactly how to do that because we see that, 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 this the significance here and the center here is not Mary, it's Jesus. Why is Mary so blessed it's because of the fruit of her womb. Blessed is Mary, but she's blessed because of the fruit of her womb, you see. And notice what Elizabeth says next. She says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I was going to try to tackle that Mother of the Lord stuff this morning, and I'm like, oh, it would make for too long of a sermon because then you get into Theotokos and you get into all of those things, and we need to do that one of these days. Some of us are grinning, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, and others are like, Theotokos, what is all that? Well, we'll get to it here one of these days. So. But um, we're not going to be able to get to that. But, but let's take a look here at what's going on in verse 43. What is Elizabeth saying? Why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. And let's let's take a look at what we've got hanging on the pegs in our mind. We've got two words there, don't we? We've got the word reversal and the word proximity. And let's think about reversal. Um, What has happened to Elizabeth? You know, if you go back to verse 36 and Gabriel's giving this wonderful grace to Mary... And saying, listen, your relative Elizabeth, you remember her, the one who was called what? Barren. And that reminds us of verse 25, you know, where Elizabeth is now pregnant and what she say. She's praising the Lord for what he has done for her to take away her what? Her reproach among the people. So here's that Elizabeth who is elderly, washed up in many people's minds, reproached and barren. Um, the word barren would be a word that no woman would want associated with her name in this culture. One of the worst things that could happen to you is to not to be able to bear children. And here she has borne this um, along with a lot of the insinuations that I've talked about in, the, in earlier messages. She has borne this uh, not for a few years, uh, not for 10 years, but for decades she has borne this. So she is on the bottom But now all of a sudden, she's no longer on the bottom. Now all of a sudden, there's a reversal, isn't there? Now all of a sudden, what is she saying? Why is this granted to me? I've been on the bottom of society for all this time. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And that brings us, that takes us to proximity. What, how, how is it that Elizabeth, who's on the bottom, reproached and barren, what is it that has brought her to be up on top now or to be uh, above? Let's just use the word above right now. What is it? Well, think of the child she's bearing. Who is the child she's carrying? It's John, right? Who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the one who is going to prepare the way for the Lord, right? He is the one who is going to cry out and say, you know, repent and make way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Uh, And uh, so what makes John the Baptist so significant is that he is the forerunner of Jesus. Do you see the chain that I'm trying to develop here? What makes Elizabeth so great? John the Baptist. What makes John the Baptist so great? Jesus. And we can draw that line to, this, to the same degree that what's making Elizabeth so great, it's her proximity to Jesus. In fact, he is with her um, right now. And Before we get to that, let's, let's just develop this just a little bit further. If you go to Matthew 11, I promised you we'd get there. If you turn to Matthew 11 and verse 11... Matthew 11, you know, Jesus says this about John the Baptist. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, have you ever been puzzled over that verse? Have you ever been wondered, okay, in what respect is John the Baptist greater uh, than all who have come before him? And it becomes especially tricky when we think there's no partiality in God. Have you ever have you ever pondered over this? These are tricky little verses right here, verses 11 and 12 in this chapter. There's a lot of ink spilled on these verses. What is exactly, in what sense is Jesus talking about that John the Baptist is greater than all who have come before him? And I think the answer is this. I mean, it's not that John the Baptist is the first one to prophesy the coming of Christ, is he? We could go back to Isaiah 700 years earlier. Isaiah, I like to go back to Isaiah because Isaiah speaks about the Messiah constantly in his writings, doesn't he? I mean, we were reading on Christmas Eve, we were reading passages from Isaiah. Listen, we could have done the whole service from Isaiah. We could have done the whole service from there. I mean, we could do a, a number of services just from Isaiah. We could run around with just Isaiah and preach the gospel without any trouble whatsoever. So what makes, what makes John greater than Isaiah? Well, Isaiah is looking hundreds of years into the future, 700 years approximately into the future. He is the one who is going to come. Obviously, it's, it's, it's into the future. Now, at the time in the writing of Isaiah, no one would know it would be 700 years, but it's in the future. Along comes Daniel, for example. Daniel's a little, you know, he's, he comes along a little bit later, but he prophesies the Messiah as well, doesn't he? But it's still in the future. Along comes Zechariah. He prophesies of the Messiah. Still well into the future. Along comes Malachi. We looked at Malachi 3, chapter 3, verse 1, talking about the Lord coming to his temple. But it's still about 400 years. But here's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is saying, prepare the way for the Lord, because among you is one of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. In other words, John the Baptist's ministry actually overlaps the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist is different in in respect to all of the prophets who've come before him because John the Baptist could say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who could point. He could point and say, right there, right there he is. It's proximity. The proximity of Jesus. Jesus is there. John the Baptist is greater because he is the last prophet on the stage of redemption before the coming of Jesus. Jesus is there. There their, Their ministries overlap for a little while. And what's so great about John is as soon as Jesus is identified, what does he do? I must decrease. And he must increase. Incredible amount of, uh, who does that? Who gets these big crowds and gets all this steam going and then suddenly says, listen, it's time for me to get out of the way. That's not, I mean, that is incredible, isn't it? That's what John the Baptist does. But notice in in Matthew 11, verse 11, let's make application of this before we leave it. Notice what Jesus says in the next sentence. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Say what? I'm going to ask this heavy theological question. Um, how comes it? You know, where did I learn that from? I learned that from Calvin. I, said that I used to tease Tammy with that all the time. How comes it? How comes it? And then one day I said, do you know where I got that from? She goes, I have no idea. So I got that from Calvin. He's the one who taught me that. How comes it? How comes it? How comes it that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven could be greater than John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist dies before he can see the crucifixion. John the Baptist is executed in by Herod before he can see the crucifixion, before he can see the resurrection, before he can see the ascension, before he can experience Pentecost and the filling of the Holy Spirit and the operation of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist didn't have a New Testament. But the one who is least in the kingdom of God, of heaven today has all of these things. And what's what's presupposed by this is that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven will be out running his yapper about these things. That's a little scary thought if we are never sharing the gospel or we're never trying to witness for Christ. Here we see the very least in the kingdom of heaven will be. What's, What's assumed by Jesus here is that, we're going to be laboring with Jesus to the building of his kingdom. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to Luke, because there's so much more going on in these verses. Here. Let's go back to Luke. Now, uh, let's think about Mary for a moment here. We've looked at, we've looked at um, Elizabeth. and We're looking at John the Baptist. We'll say more about him in a moment, but let's think about Mary how far along do you suppose Mary is in her pregnancy? I mean, it seems to me that the events of verses um, 26 through 38 and the events of verse 39 and 40 are happening pretty close together. In other words, um, upon Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she's going to be with child, she's with child pretty fast. And she's making her way to Elizabeth pretty fast. So what do you suppose? We're not given an exact time frame, but what do you think? Was it within days? Was it within weeks that she's actually at Zechariah's house and this greeting is taking place? I can't think it'd be more than two or three weeks tops. Can you? It seems to be happening quickly. We can only guess. We're not given the amount of days. But here's my point. What, how far along is Mary in her pregnancy? We ask Alex, he's, you know, we ask some of our medical folks, I don't know how long you spoke. It's anybody's guess, but it's, it would have to be measured at tops in weeks, right? And yet, Mary walks into the room, and what happens? As soon as she greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth hears the greeting, and John the Baptist sleeps in her womb. Let's think about proximity for a moment. What is causing John the Baptist to leap? Well, they're hearing the voice of Mary, but what have we learned from our literary device? It's not Mary. It's the fruit of her womb. Why is John the Baptist leaping? Because Jesus just walked in the room. He didn't walk himself, obviously. But my point is, Jesus is present. He's there. Now, you notice God didn't say, well, you know, we got to wait for Mary. She needs to get penned up there for a little while and let a number of weeks go by until there's a heartbeat and then she can show up. Because when there's a heartbeat, then Jesus will be present. No. Life begins at conception. At conception, a human being begins. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Jesus miraculously has been conceived in the womb of Mary, and Jesus is present, and that is the cause of the baby leaping in, in Elizabeth's womb. And that is, that is what's happening with Elizabeth being uh, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaiming all of these things for us. And we, you know, the obvious application. Uh, for us today is the application of abortion. I heard someone, I, I read, I read or someone said recently, and I don't know what the number is up to, but what I read was this. It was, a, it was a preacher. He said this. It was a sermon that I was reading. And he said, there have been 68 million babies murdered in this country. And do you think that God is just going to stand back and stand by idly? To think that God is not eventually going to enact some kind of judgment on our country for what is taking place. Um, I had a conversation last night, actually, with a friend, a family member, and we were talking about this. I said, can you imagine having 68 million people in one place, what the size of the assembly would be. 68 million people, say, in a a large field somewhere. would have to be a massive field, wouldn't it, to have 68 million people in it? I don't even know what kind of field you'd find to put that many people in it. And then imagine all those people being there and at once them all being slaughtered. There's been nothing, I think it's unparalleled in history. What could we we possibly parallel this with in in history? The only thing I can think of that would parallel this would be Noah's flood. I don't know how many people were alive during Noah's time. I'm inclined to be there far less than 68 million. But I don't know how many people were alive during Noah's flood. But I know that only eight people survived Noah's flood. So it puts in perspective the atrocities that are being committed in the United States every day, every hour of every day. Now, there's many other things we could, we could glean from here. We're thinking about um, reversal. We're thinking about proximity. You know, on an upper note from that last application, which is really a low note, but it's one we need to think about what is John the Baptist's assignment? His assignment is to point to Jesus, isn't it? His assignment is to turn the hearts of the people to Jesus, and his assignment is to point to Jesus. You know, the amazing thing about our story here is Mary comes in, and as soon as Elizabeth hears the sound of Mary, what is the baby doing? What is John the Baptist doing? He's pointing to Jesus, isn't he? Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is really an incredible story, isn't it? I mean, this is really an incredible story. And she says in verse, Elizabeth says in verse 44, when the sound of your voice came to my ears, my baby leaped for joy. My baby leaped for joy. And you know, if I might mind, if I might go back to the, to the you know what, if we go back to the abortion, the abortion issue just for one second, um, another application of that just came to my mind. I don't want to lose the opportunity to share this because this is more on an upper note. Oftentimes, when you've had the painful experience of miscarrying, and many of us have had that experience, and it's a very painful, painful experience, we need to, we need to put what we have just discussed here in action. What have we just said in here? Here, Jesus, how far along is Mary in her pregnancy? Two weeks? Three weeks? Possibly only two weeks? Possibly only a week? We don't know. I mean, she's traveling on foot, I would presume. I don't know how long it took her to make arrangements to leave, um, how long it took her to get there, but it's happening very quickly. Two weeks? Three weeks? Sometimes... I think we find ourselves carried along by abortion terminology where we might be kind of quick to say, well, okay, um, you know, we were pregnant, but we were only a few weeks along and we lost it. So that's somehow less a loss than if you're six months along or maybe somehow less a loss if you're you know, carrying fully to term, and the child is born. To, listen, I mean, for a mom to carry that child, the longer she carries it, probably the greater the pain's going to be. But what we need to get in our heads very firmly is this. Regardless of when that time frame takes place, a human being has died. And here's, here's the point that I want to make. When are you a father, and when are you a mother? Are you only a father or mother if the child is born? Oftentimes we think of it that way, don't we? And, I, and I, that's, that's how the church should never be carried by an evil culture such as abortion. It's a big moneymaker. I heard something to the tune of some of you might know better than me, maybe two billion or three billion a year. Am I right? I mean, some of you know these figures. It owns the Democratic Party. Probably half the Republican Party, too, if the truth be known all of the money that they throw around it's huge it's a huge business it's a wicked business but how far are we carried along by some of that terminology sometimes where we think well you know she was only 6 weeks and she lost you know and we go oh you know something it makes no difference is a child less a child when it's is it less a human being when it's 6 months old versus when it's 6 years old Is he less of a human being when he's six months old or when he is six years old? And we're going to say no. Well, is he less a human being when he's six months old and he's six weeks old? Is he less a human being when he is six months old in the very moment of his conception? We've got to get this firm in our heads. We've got to get this. And this, this is one of the places, one of the clearest places in Scripture where I think we can get this firm in our heads. You follow me? It will help us minister to people who are losing children. You have a child waiting for you. If you're a believer, your children are holy. You have a child. You've got, you've God, listen, we can put it this way without being so suspicious. Uh, specific, we could say, "Listen, God has surprises for you, man. He really has surprises for you." At any rate, John the Baptist leaps for joy at the sound of Mary coming, and Mary. How does Mary respond? Let's just start on that a little bit. I think we can do get into that a little bit, at least for terms of of of, of uh, reversal and proximity. Uh, Mary begins to burst out in song. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, and I'm in verse 48 of Luke 1. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, you might have already caught some of the reversals that are going on in there. You caught it, didn't you, Alex? You've seen it. They're all over the place. They're all over the place. Verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary is an obscure peasant girl who we have never heard of if it weren't for this story. We would have never heard of her if it weren't for her proximity to Christ. But that's made all the difference in the world, that now every generation after her has heard of her. What a significant difference. And the same thing could be said of Elizabeth. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, verse 48. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. We have. We should. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You see, figuratively speaking, second line gives reason for the first line. Always keep that principle in your mind and you won't be going overboard and falling into idolatry. And verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from his generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Here's a reversal. It's the opposite. The proud have experienced a reversal where they're up here and by their obstinance and unbelief are now down here. You see, it's an opposite reversal. We see this in the case of the proud. We also see this in the case of the mighty. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. This is an important message for us right now. We're being bullied by the mighty. And these wicked policies that the mighty want to inflict on us, we're being bullied by them. Listen, they're going to be brought down from their thrones unless they repent. I think those thoughts, every hour that I'm awake, I keep thinking that. You guys are going to get brought down if you don't repent. might not be a bad thing to say to them from time to time. You're going to be brought down. The mighty from their thrones are going to be brought down and again. He will exalt those of humble estate. You see the two reversals that are in verse 52. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. There you see reversals, the hungry being filled, the rich being sent away empty. You see the two reversals that are going there. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And how is all this? What is, under, what is undergirding all this? Proximity. But let's take proximity and let's go a little bit further with proximity and we'll move this to a close, Okay. I've been using the word proximity, 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 proximity. But let's take proximity and let's segue it into a theological word that we're more familiar with. What is that word? It's union. It's union. What do I mean by union? Well, the moment that a sinner puts his or her trust in Christ, what happens? the gift of faith that they've received by the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating their heart and transforming their heart, that gift of faith unifies them or brings them into union, if you will, with Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is already in operation in their heart. In other words, we have this filling of the Holy Spirit, don't we? And at that point in time, A reversal takes place. What is the reversal? Well, we go from being dead, spiritually dead sinners who are the objects of God's wrath, which would be down here, right? And by this proximity, or better put, by this union with Christ Jesus, we are said that we dwell with him in the heavenly places. How much higher does it get than that? how's this all possible because this this child who was born in the manger is going to grow and live a perfect life. And he's going to take that life to the cross. He's going to die on the cross. And he's going to take the sins of us of all who will put their faith and trust in him. So he can take the sins away uh, from those who all will put their faith and trust in him. So that wonderful transaction can take place as soon as we cry out to him for mercy and say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. He can take them sins away because he has suffered the penalty of those sins. But then he gives us his righteousness, if you will, the gift of righteousness. But then he brings us into union with him. He's He's, he has no problem with calling us brothers and sisters. He has no problem with sharing his inheritance with us. We're now daughters and sisters, sisters or daughters and, and sons of Almighty God, sisters and brothers. And where are we at? Ephesians chapter 1. We dwell with Christ in the heavenly places. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. That's a reversal. Isn't that a reversal? If you're in Christ this morning, that's where you are regardless of what your external circumstances may be for the moment, you're in the heavenly places with the Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. There's so much more, Father. Your word is so amazing and magnificent, and we recognize that there's so many more things that could be said. Oh, Father, we thank you for filling us this morning and giving to us, oh, Father Uh, to our capacity, O Lord. We thank you and praise you, O Father, for the wonderful future that we have in you. And we thank you, O Father, for this reversal. And Father, all the praise for this reversal is is owing to our union with you. You have come, you've done this work in our hearts, and you've brought us in this faith union with you, O Father. And now all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus are ours, and we're seated with you in the heavenly places. And we can sing songs with Elizabeth and Mary and we can sing songs with Zechariah and Ananias and Simeon. And, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the songs that we were singing on Christmas Eve and the songs that we've been singing this morning, O oh Father. For we will sing these songs for all eternity. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.